Okay, so this is the Edge Cases podcast. I am Andrew Pontius. And I'm Wolf French. And we will be your hosts for this podcast. Uh, we are recording this on Sunday, May 13th. And our very first topic for our very first podcast is going to be Core Datum. Uh, so for that, I will turn us over to Wolf. Yeah, we wanted to choose a topic where we could we wouldn't run out of material, and so um, we could actually fill out more than six or seven minutes. <laughs> but uh, so Cordetta is uh, pretty rich in topic material, and I've been using Cordetta f- well before it was even before it shipped. So I've been using the ancestor. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what's the good parts and the bad parts of Cordetta. Andrew, have you used uh, Cordetta much? I've used it some, and, and actually, uh, so before we start with it, uh, I think we can say that this is our, our first difference as the two hosts of uh, Edge Cases. And not the last. For me, it's core data, and oh. for you, it is... Well, I, I take it uh, as after the uh, Star Trek Android data. You take it as data, data right? Yeah. So, so there you go. That's our first fight. Fight. <laughs> we definitely don't want to be you know, one of these uh, shows that does, we're in agreement with everything. Right, the sparks to fly, and you can see this this very contentious topic that I don't think we can resolve this. I think we have to end the show now. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> and actually, it's another good point in that uh, we're going to be in general aiming for about a half an hour podcast, just so so people can know. So we will hoping hope to be able to get to some amount of detail about things, but not necessarily going on and on. Yeah, so we, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we want, we want to keep this below Syracuse level. <laughs> yes. Although I get, we could do the thing where we have two-hour shows and claim we're trying to get down to three minutes. <laughs> You're right. No, no, no. <laughs> we're actually going to do it. Okay. Well, I hope. That's what he says too. But anyway, let's uh, kick this off. So, but now, so you- I've used Core Data uh, on iOS, uh, and I, I, I must have. I've probably played around with it on macOS, mm-hmm. but it's really on iOS recently, at least, that I've been been doing it in you know shipping applications and. Um, yeah, I would say that like uh, I give it, I've given a lot of talks on core data, and um, I basically always lead off with the idea that if you're writing a, a, a iOS or a Mac app, you should assume you should be writing a core data app. That is your assumption, and then you should look for reasons not to do it. And there are valid reasons for that, but you should always assume that you are writing a core data app. Um, uh-huh. it, it is it ob- the obviously you know, if you're just doing something where your dad can sit in PLS or you have no dad at all, then you don't use core data. Okay. Okay. So um, let me talk a little bit about what core data gets so amazingly right. And so um, so core data is this um, de- depending on who you talk to, and they'll call it different things. Like uh, they'll call it an object relational mapper. Uh, that's not really what it is. Um, but it's along those lines of things, so people can usually they say, "Oh, it's like this other thing." And uh-huh. um, for example, uh, from the rail side of the world, uh, people have a familiarity with uh, this thing called Active Record. And um, I don't know what Windows people use, some Microsoft technology, no doubt. But uh, on the Python side of things, you're running a website, you might have Django. Um, and this has a long history of where you have essentially you have these objects of memory and you have some sort of you need to write them to disk somehow, and so that's what that's Cordata has Apple's little answer to that. Well, so is that what you would you consider that that the serialization aspect of Cordata is the the primary uh, feature of it? Uh, if you if you want to say what Cordata engineers would say, and I'm inclined to agree with them, although it's it tends to be confusing is that 
core data is an object graph kind of management um, uh, management framework that allows that this almost almost has happens to be able to read and write objects to disk. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that has actually a lot of the kind of things that seem weird about core data and maybe inefficient or just wrong. If you think about it in terms of being mostly an object graph management framework, then a lot of a lot of you get a lot of like aha moments. But um, so one one things I want to do is that because a lot there's a lot of baggage with ORMs, there's a lot of like hatred for object relational mapping frameworks and all that. And so I first want to kind of kind of uh, say what core data is and how it's architected, so you can like compare it to these other guys. Uh-huh. Okay. So um, I like to tell people that there's basically when you're dealing with traditional, let's assume that core data is an ORM now. And when you're dealing with ORMs, you're dealing with really three things. You're dealing with like the class that tends to be in your language de jure. It could be Ruby, Java, Objective-C. You have the model, which is kind of like the – you have these these so-called entities that have – you can think of them as records or something that have fields. And then you have the – it tends to be an SQL store. So like you have the tables that are sitting on disk. So you have three things. And yep. there's this um, – each and between Active Record, Django, and Core Data, they basically put one of these f- uh, foremost. So, for example, Django is that you you write your your uh, you write your Python and you spell out what you have this record name and you have you know first name last name whatever and you kind of define it right in your Python file and then Django will read that and will generate the model from that and also generate the SQL from that. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So Active Record. Puts essentially the the uh, what's known as the DDL, the data definition language. That's in SQL when you have the like the create table statement. That's basically right. DDL. Mm-hmm. And so Active Record, when you when the framework starts up, it will go and query your database and say, "Give me a description of all the tables," and then it will find matching Ruby classes and tie those together. So in that case, so in like Django, the .py file is the first class citizen, and everything else is kind of derived from it. And Active Record is actually your database. Well, it will read the data definition language and then and then re- backfill from that. So what uh, Core Data does is it actually puts the model first. So in Core Data, you've probably seen the files, the XC data model, sometimes ending with D. Actually, nowadays mostly ending in D. So .xc data model D files. Yeah. And that's your data model. And from there, and that's and in my opinion, Core Data gets this right that languages come and go, uh, how you store your data is, shifts around and ages and can, and also comes and goes and you can have different data plugins. So really, uh, the most important thing to me is actually almost like the this philosophical truth that is the model file. And everything else can be derived from that. And Core Data, in my opinion, is the one who gets it right in that case. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the, the idea being that you could you could, in theory, <clears throat> switch uh, databases, database technologies out from under it, and you could switch class languages out from under it, mm-hmm. but the model would stay the same. Exactly. And if, as a fact, um, Apple has a history of doing just that. And I'll talk a little bit about um, that after I talk about a few other things. So that's so. Core Data definitely gets that right. Um, core Data is is 
pretty high level in that you have these things called managed objects that represent these or what uh, that basically objects that can be serialized and unserialized and how they tie together with other objects. And um, also uh, Xcode has a really nice uh, graphical layout tool for kind of having these different entities as rectangles on your screen with arrows in between representing your too one and too many relationships. And so uh, if I were giving this with a visual, I've given this talk before, but it's um, usually what I like to do is I like to throw up um, a, like three screenfuls of active record code um, explaining a data model, a fairly simplistic data model of like three or five entities and how they interact. And then I can show that graphically in terms of one Xcode data model or screenshot. And it's so much more obvious graphically how these things are interrelated than it is to actually express in code. So that's it. Uh, to me, that's a big win to actually think, be able to think of these things visually and leverage the spatial side of your brain. Okay. And so now we can kind of talk about like the bad parts of uh, core data. And so I'm, I, I'm gonna, I, I'm impressed with myself that I haven't brought it up yet, but. Uh, there's because it's hard for me to not talk about it when I'm talking about core data, but I uh, but uh, there was this predecessor to core data called Enterprise Objects Framework, otherwise abbreviated as EOF, and that was a terrible name. I've always said it's a terrible name because everyone knows EOF stands for end of file. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and I always thought that it should be named uh, Poof, a per- persistent objects framework. But that sounds like your data will go poof. So in that in that puff, puff. Well, if you want to be technical about it, sure. <laughs> okay. I uh, so core data. You say you say puff. <laughs> yep. And um, so EOF was the predecessor, and this was uh, written back in the next days. So it actually started as this technology known as DB Kit. And what's really funny is that um, I have this interest in this thing that I've dubbed software evolution, where it's like. You know, you have this code base, and you have this problem, and you want to extend it to this other. If you have to do more or do less or take it this other direction, and to me, it almost seems like there's a set of patterns of software has to go through in order to grow. You see this in languages, uh, you see this in frameworks, you see this in libraries, and it's very funny to like look at the old DB kit and seeing what features they add on because. Um, for the evolution of EOF into where it began in DBKit, and I think it would end up being EOF 5 before they basically threw it away and wrote core data, um, you can see in how they added features and how some things held them back, some things they added on, some things they had to get rid of, other things they added. And you, o- you almost can look at the field of object relational mapping technology and all the, comp- all the competitors to EOF, and you can, tr- you can build this timeline where you say, okay, they're in this stage of their evolution, and they have, they, they're running to these walls that that next overcame in this way, and they're that's what they're working on now. And to me, that's a, you know pretty that's a pretty big thumbs up to the next guys, because I you know I def- definitely have a lot of different opinions in uh, next engineering, but uh, they to me, uh, in my opinion, they did a fantastic job with EOF, and their evolution from DBKit to EOF is a telling one. And so anyone who's used uh, Core Data will see a lot of similarities to EOF. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and as a matter of fact, this is actually probably my biggest complaint about Core Data is that it's not EOF. 
You see, we talked about, like, you have this in theory, this pluggable languages, and you have pluggable storage engines and all this. So EOF had this. Uh, EOF was built to talk to uh, relational data, uh, built to talk to pluggable backends. And in the real world, that meant uh, Sybase, Oracle, DB2. Yeah, um, yeah, I remember that. MySQL, all these guys. And remember, Nexus was very enterprisey, so they talked to, to talk to relational databases. Talk to the big iron databases. Exactly. Yeah. And with with EO, and um, but the thing is, like EOF also had no problem talking to LDAP, which is definitely not SQL storage. It's more kind of a key valuey. And it also like they had a, a CSV. Uh, read write uh, pl- data storage, and they had all this flexibility, and they actually use this, and it was it was very nice. Um, and then the and on the class side of things, uh, obviously EOF was initially written in Objective C, but Web Objects was the primary user of, of EOF, and they moved for better or for worse, they moved Web Objects to Java, and so they rewrote EOF in Java, and so that meant your one data model could generate either Objective-C code for your Objective-C apps or Java code for your Java apps. And so that's an example of a real-world evolution where they needed this this uh, flexibility that if you went model first, you basically kind of fell out for free. So it's not just well, an academic concern yeah. of what languages you can derive from a model file. is actually you could also obviously derive Python from it, from it or Ruby or what have you. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's a, bit, a big win in my book. Um, so, and why Apple decided to go with um, rewriting EOF from scratch, I don't know the the official reason. Uh, but I, I kind of get the impression that EOF was, you know, a ton of black magic, and and um, they like no one understood it all. And I'm actually a defender of this idea of rewriting things to understand it. And I think that's actually the uncredited reason why developers actually want to rewrite so much is that they feel the only way to understand a piece of software is to rewrite it and write all the code themselves. And so I kind of get that feeling with core data. It's like there's this big legacy thing that goes way back to DBKit and no one at Apple currently understands it all. And besides, we have this other new technologies coming out, which is, uh, cave, uh, I believe at the time it was KVO, Key Value Observing. So maybe we can rewrite it in terms of that and let's, let's do this. So I think that's kind of the reason. But when Core Data shipped in uh, Mac OS t- uh, 10.4, which I don't know what, what big cat that is. I'll let you fill that in. I don't track the big cats. But is, that, is that Tiger? That was Tiger. I think that was Tiger, yeah. yeah. You know, when, once I hear the, the ma- mapping, I can usually say whether that's right or wrong. But I don't actually tend to waste the neuron to f- right. remember that marking information. I do. So, yes, go on. Okay, well, I'm glad you're on this podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they rewrote it, and they shipped it in uh, 10.4. It was uh, definitely 1.0 there, but it was very well designed in terms of it got the job done. was obviously missing a ton of features. Well, now, didn't you get the sense when it came out? I, I don't have any insider knowledge about this, but my impression at the time was that they rewrote it <clears throat> to be a, a, a end application, native application Technology from a big iron enterprise technology. Right, that was one of the things they threw away was entire client server server architecture yep. of EOF. Mm-hmm. Was that it was it had its own data store that could talk to a file on the user's computer, and it had no sort of way to uh, have distributed communication over network. So that was the biggie. And as a matter of fact, to this day, 
uh, that's not built into core data. So the kind of the client serverish nature of uh, EOF was just left behind when they rewrote it as core data. Well, there's a there's a, a there is sort of like a bridge or a adapter that you can write, but their documentation specifically tells you don't try to talk to a server with right. this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Other people have written adapters. Uh, that's one of the evolution points that Cordata has taken. Is that initially you had three types of stores. You had the the in memory store. You had the well, I guess yeah. Four different stores. You had the in-memory store that was not persistent at all. Then you could write to a basically a plist, a um, XML file, or the uh, uh, SQLite backend. And uh, so that that right there is again as an example of like its pluggable nature. But they they that was not an API Apple exposed into. Ooh, I want to say ten point six. That might have been ten point five thing, but I think it's ten point six. And yeah, so some people did figure out how to write like so you could talk to a remote database. But until I think I think it was maybe ten point six that introduced a trans uh, more of an atomic API that you can actually have transactions of core data. You basically could not guarantee any sort of consistency, so that was very not recommended. Hmm. So that was so they kind of they so they left behind EOF's client server advantage, and all you have to do is talk to Hilligus about this, and he was very pissed off about this too. <laughs> oh yeah, bunch of people. Were, <laughs> think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, C four gave a talk about that, and uh, he even went so far as to write his own uh, core data competitor, uh, BNR persistence, Big Nerd Ranch persistence. Oh, that's right. My yeah. God. And uh, but what's funny is that uh, his is not a client server either. It uh, uses. Tokyo Cabinet on the back end, um, which is a a, uh, a local technology. I don't. It might have a, a client server story now. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so that's, so the basically the the EOF old guard was so, uh, sorely disappointed in in uh, core data. It did not give us the type of things we want. And it's not just the, like the client server heads that are set. Um, it's also for me one of the big problems with core data. Is that the that it's opaque, and I'm not talking about that in terms of the in terms of the API or the framework standpoint. It's more that the X, XC data model files themselves aren't documented, and there's they're a binary plist. And of course, you can pop them open and start to reverse engineer them. But that's in the EOF days, they actually were ASCII plists, and you could totally go in and read or write them with with tools that Apple did not supply. So what? What Apple's given before we had this .eo model file that would have ASCII plists of all your entities, and that was also what you'd use in production. For some reason, Apple decided it'd be a good idea to have this one file used for development and this other file used for production. And so the file you use for development is XE data model, and the thing, and then it gets compiled. And I'm doing air quotes here to this other thing called the manage object model file or .mom. Which is right. it's, it's nice that we're recording this on Mother's Day. So there you go. Hi, mom. <laughs> and uh, they're both opaque. They're both binary plists, and Apple doesn't document them and say don't look inside them. And and so to me, this is actually this is almost offensive in terms of like a philosophical standpoint because, like I said, you know, a model contains you know your, your domain object mapping, and to me, that's actually a very very important part of. Of your software is like what are what are your domain objects and how do they relate to each other, and when they're in ASCII plists, of course you could crack that open in a text editor and take a look, and it was almost self-describing. 
and it's offensive to me. The idea that this, this critical piece of your software is locked up in these binary files that you have to require Apple tools even to get a, a dump out of. Well, this is actually one thing that I, I was I have in my, my little notes here to, to add into the conversation is <clears throat> that they actually switched that around. Oh, actually, that's right. You don't know this. Um, at some point in Xcode 4, and I, I should have looked this up before the show, Apple went ahead and took that old data model format and switched it to be a text format. And I'm not sure exactly what kind of text format, but I believe it's text. And so your old model, which is a binary binary file, and I believe it was actually um, – it used sort of the standard Cocoa um, – Standard Cocoa uh, uh, object saving right. APIs. Yeah, like if, yeah. if you look at that stuff, and that you know that's why it's binary, and that's why it's you know that you can't you can't understand it. And they switched that to something which was which was uh, not uh, just a dump of the of the objects anymore, but rather text. And I should look up exactly when that happened. And, and for me, it was kind of it's kind of uh, interesting uh, that. Uh, they did this, uh, you know, quietly under the hood without telling you, um, you know, in kind of a in a way that would feel, I think, to most developers, a little hostile. Whereas for a user, you know, you don't necessarily care what the underlying format is, so you know, change it, change it underneath the hood for you, uh, and you know, don't bother me with it. But with developers, hey, I want to know what format it is because I can't bring this back to an old version of Xcode, for example, anymore. Mm-hmm. And yet, you didn't even you didn't even warn me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the bad side of it. The bad side is that they treated the transition as if you were a consumer instead of as a developer. But the good side is they actually uh, maybe addressed your point, which is that they made it something which is human-readable. Mm-hmm. And so as you keep talking, I'm going to try an example of this and see exactly what the format is. Mm-hmm. But I know for me, at least, it was it was quite nice because going forward, you know, for example, diffs are much easier mm-hmm. when you when you have a textual format. So so let me let me try that out. Okay. Yeah, I know that. Um, so I had the side project Mo Generator, and um, Brian Webster, I believe, contributed some templates to Mo Generator. That all it was, all these templates were, was it would take the binary files and dump them to the textual format, so you could actually diff these things. And I do remember the announcement, but as another episode we'll talk about, I'm not using Xcode for yet. And uh, so we'll go into all sorts of detail about that. But uh, yeah, so I'm not benefiting from that, but I'm glad they did. Yeah, but okay, uh, go on. Okay. And uh, so I mentioned you should use core data as by default. Assume assume if you're building a new app and you have any sort of data storage needs, you just should, you just should start with core data. And in particular, you probably actually want to start, start with the XML storage because that way you can pop, it, pop up in your objects in a text editor and take a look at what you're really storing, which tends to be uh, illuminating. And also it gives you a little bit of more uh, version independence that you can make, you can make some changes and uh, deal with slightly different uh, schemas and going backwards and forwards. Uh, it has to be a little bit more flexible, a little bit more forgiving. So I recommend you start with XML storage and then once your needs get bigger, you can move to the SQL Lite one. But um, so one of the reasons why you shouldn't use core data and Brent Simmons had a blog posting on this a while back where he, he uh, documented why he was trying to get away from core data. And, one, and I believe he was uh, talking about uh, NetNewsWire, and he was trying to use core data for it. Yeah, I remember, remember that post. We should, we should put that in the show notes. Hey, there you go, Mr. Show Notes. Hey. And, and so 
I mentioned that Core Data is really is an object graph management framework. And so really what this means is that Core Data wants to have objects in memory to manipulate them. And in Brunt's case, when you have a, a newsreader, you'll have 100,000 items. And in order to, say, you know, look at a subscription and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's um, you know, I, I can't have cheeseburger and you haven't, ha- haven't you're 10,000 items behind on it and you hit the mark all, it's red. And so what that means is that 10,000 objects have to be brought in from the SQL store and brought into memory to flip that one bit and then write them back out. And that's horribly inefficient. And so it tends to be slow and... That's kind of the end of story. Um, I've I've petitioned Apple to have something that I call NS Manage Object Operation, which could kind of have this idea that you could, it could ha- be an optimization, so these objects wouldn't have to be read into memory. That these the operation could be transformed into SQL in the case of SQL stores, or could be actually applied to in-memory stores as well. But unfortunately, they haven't gone anything like that, and so the. The issue here is that if you have to deal with sets of objects and a lot of them, uh, core data is not really your friend, is not a good match for your, your problem domain. Right. Um, yes, I... Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. So um, that's pretty much what I have with, uh, to say with core data. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, now, uh, do you have any experience with... Uh, Trying to use core data with with large amounts of uh, of objects in that fashion. Um, there are are cheats, and of course, yeah. um, the 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 core data SQLite store. You know, they say is a undocumented format. Don't you can't look under the hood. But obviously, if you shut down your core data stack and you just do right. SQLite open on that, um, you'll find it looks like it's been named by the French because all the entities begin with Z. <laughs> It'd be Z person yeah. and Z address and all this. Um, so obviously they're just trying to do some namespacey things that they put the put the Z character in front of everything. But uh, it's really easy to figure out how things work and pop those open. And if in Brunt's case, he could totally have shut down his core data stack, and not even necessarily shut down the core data stack. I'm just you know obviously you you have some consistency issues there if you're if you're reopening this file. And core, behind core data is back. So the safest thing would be to shut down the stack. But I could totally see the unit you know, uh, like just locking that thread so it can't go any farther. Make sure you have exclusive access, and then telling core data to change somehow, maybe by informing the persistent store coordinator. But so you can open that guy up and issue SQL commands to mark all's red, whose subscription ID equals blah, and after that transaction is done, just closing it all down. So uh, what's nice about EOF is that we actually had an escape hatch built in that there's this thing where you can actually inject raw SQL into uh, into your um, your editing context or something like that. And it's you could and it was up to you to let the rest of EOF know like, okay, these objects have changed underneath you and all that, so you need to figure this out. But the escape hatch was there and it was kind of built in. It was not great, that's why I kind of suggested the higher level idea of having an NS managed object operation. But right. but um, it was there, and so there are so there is a, a kind of a direct escape hatch in EOF, and there is you know this other escape hatch in Core Data. But uh, yeah, well that um let's let's see right so it brings up a point that I, I was also thinking of making here, which was um 
Cardata, it feels like it's <clears throat> it's a leaky abstraction. And, you know, almost everything is a leaky abstraction. Um, uh, it's it feels like from from some of my background, um, it feels like it's very easy to get it wrong uh, in terms of setting up your model, unless you basically already are pretty much a database expert. Hmm. Uh, unless you already know, okay, this is how you would lay out a database such to make it, you know, relatively performant and and relatively sane, you're going to have a lot of trouble making a more robust core data implementation uh, simply because so much of how it works relies on what feels to me like basically database concepts and, and technology. Uh, so that's, you know, the very thing that I would say to people who want to use core data for anything other than the very most simple thing in the world is, you know, read up on this stuff. And, and Apple's documentation is actually pretty good in giving you a, a sense of the very basics of that sort of, uh, those sorts of concepts, that sort of world. But in my mind, you should probably be playing around with SQLite yourself um, for a while before you try to do things that are too kind of ambitious or or expert in core data because you, I just think you're going to get bitten. Uh, wow. So that's, that's a really interesting. I definitely do have a, the, the advantage slash disadvantage that I had a strong grounding in database technology before I picked up uh, core data. And I forget what, where my education was in terms of when I was uh, messing around with EOF, but um, yeah, so I have a, a strong background there. So that that's never really occurred to me that yeah, um, especially one of the thorns I could see that get easily wedged in your side is um, as you're building your data model, and especially if you're new to it. I tend to just be able to knock out pretty much data models I want, you know, off the top of my head for a given app. But I could totally see that if you need to take a more iterative approach and you're a novice at data modeling, that you could design things that are totally don't match your your problem domain or or even worse match your problem name you ship 1.0 and then you realize in order to add this thing you have to do a dra- dra- uh, drastic uh, re- remodeling of how your data is stored and obviously you can have migrations in core data but that core data has automatic migrations of simple cases built in and i've been leveraging those since they've had them and that's really great and that's one of the re- reasons i recommend the xml store because you also get some of that backwards and forwards usually with migrations you only can go one way but with xml you can kind of cheat often oh yeah okay mm-hmm. that's why i recommend xml uh to at least for development stage type stuff um and yeah so i could totally see that Writing manual migrations is tricky, and it's easy. It's 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 tedious, and I basically I go off my way so I don't have to write those. And if you are kind of flailing at core data, and God help you if you ship an app and you actually have real world data that you can't tell people, oh well, it's gone <laughs> because I changed my schema. Um, right, it, it, that's definitely a big issue. But I w- would, <laughs> I don't know if I can get behind your your advice to say start with SQLite. Well, okay, maybe that's um, yeah, maybe that's a little hardcore, but uh, but okay, okay. Let's put it this way: start obviously start with Core Data because it's the simplest way, and and Apple has a lot of documentation over it. But if you find yourself getting to the point of saying, hmm, "How do I do this?" and Apple's documentation only goes so far, you know, maybe before you go to the next level in Core Data where you try to do more complicated things, you know, then maybe go and and learn a little about SQLite before before going ahead and trying the next. Level. I mean, you know, for me, it's also academic because I also have a background in in web objects and EOF. Um, 
And so I, I knew a lot of the background of these things uh, beforehand as well. So I did not have to go that route myself. Um, but I, I have heard about other people getting into these troubles. Um, so that's that's that point. Yeah, I, I, I definitely could see that problem uh, creeping up, especially with, with uh, newer developers. Yeah, absolutely. And this but is a, that's yeah. almost like a almost like a uh, kind of like as you say data database design kind of like basic denormalization what it's good for and when you don't when you don't uh, normalize and when you denormalize for performance reasons. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So what's our what's our time at right now? Um, uh, I know I'm not sure because we <laughs> kind of we were talking about stuff before, so I, right. this would probably be a good time to stop. Okay. Um. Right. Sounds good. Uh, this is a good first podcast. Um, so in terms of uh, uh, our show, and I'm, I actually, do you remember if I actually said the name of it at the beginning? Yes, I think I did. Uh, this is the Edge Cases podcast. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Edge Cases Show, uh, sort of all one word. Um, you can also find us at Edge Cases Show, all one word, dot com. That's our website where you'll be able to find individual pages for each of the uh the episodes and also uh excuse me also uh what i'm calling show notes just because that's also what the five by five podcasts call it uh we may come up with our own unique name later uh for what they are but in any case notes on what we talked about during the podcast you can find those there and uh if all goes well you also be able to find us on uh on apple's itunes uh just search on edge cases and uh, do you want us to also give the Twitter handles for us personally, or you want to just give that up? Um, yeah, we could put that in the show notes. So the show notes as well. All right, so there you go. If you want to see our individual personal podcast, uh, excuse me, podcast uh, Twitter handles, uh, go to the webpage as well. So thanks for listening. Okay, so long. And uh, yep. Okay, bye.